supposed to be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film and Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Simon Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Now, freelance writer and critic Farad Nehru will be unable to join us this week. I've given some work commitments, but he'll be joining us next week and the post of the following week. Maybe a little more info on the two films we are covering this week, which are The Trial of the Chicago 7 and On the Rocks. Could be a few weeks until we can cover both of these completely because I think Trial of the Chicago 7 is on Netflix next week. Okay. On the Rocks is on Apple TV from the 23rd, but they're both in cinemas in Sydney and around Australia now. So you can yes. have some previews of those. Before we get into what movies we're covering, we just want to touch on the film news of the week, and that is that the Antenna Documentary Film Festival has a couple of screenings going ahead this weekend and the following week, as do Fantastic Film Festival Australia at the Randwick Ritz. Static Vision are going into their mixed bag screening, so people will send in recommendations of what to watch. That is on Friday night. Cinema Reborn has a couple of screenings, and the, the, the Jean-Pierre, the retrospective is on at the Ritz. Le Circle Rouge, by the way, sold out both sessions, so it's doing really well. Tons of people are turning up for the retrospective screenings at the Ritz, and Cinema Reborn has rebounded in this smaller scale version post-COVID, so yay. Yeah, good on them. Good on Jeff. Jeffrey Gardner, that is. SF3 are happening this weekend, and you can catch the gala finals on Saturday night. I've got a flick of the final, so I will definitely be there. I'm very much looking forward to it. This is at Event George Street, or streaming online? Yes, Event George Street at 6.30pm. There's also events happening throughout the weekend, including SF3 Kids and their Masterclass, and the gala and some of the other events are also streaming online. And Congrats, Kids- Glenn. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. Looking forward to it. And Kino Sydney are having their Kino 154, I think it is, maybe 155. And that is on October 12th. So that's Monday night. And you can still get your flicks in. The other film news of the week is that, sad for this James Bond fan, that No Time to Die has yet again been delayed. This is till April 2021. This means that there's going to be a five and a half year break between the two Bond films, which is almost as much as the standing record, which is the six year break between License to Kill and Goldeneye from 89 through 95, which is remarkable, especially considering it's still the standing James Bond, which makes Daniel Craig by far the longest running James Bond, to put it in perspective. Yeah, this is the last one, right? Oh, yeah. He's, he's too done. old now. He looks younger than he is. He looks younger than he looked in Skyfall Inspector. He looks great, at least in the trailer. But that's going to be delayed. It's coming out the same day as Fast and Furious. There's a few other delays they're talking for. They won't release them both on the same day. At the moment, it's like there's a completely empty schedule. There's movies that aren't finished that have all been delayed. When it comes to blockbusters, surely between the two studios, they can find different space. You're all working to a similar goal for the first time here. Unless this is kind of the goal. It's like releasing one movie like Tenet wasn't enough. Maybe if we bring it, put out two heavy hitters at the same time, that will drive attendance to cinemas, like the rising tide that helps all boats. And hopefully the studios, should they need, I think they do need to cooperate at this time because they want not mm. just this to respect the studios, but the cinemas to remain open. Cinemas are in a bit of a dire state more so than you know, before around the world, given prospective long-term delays. Yeah, that's November right. Now. No Time to Die's delay has had seemingly significant flow-on effects. There have been chains in America and the UK 
that have temporarily decided to shutter a lot of their cinemas now. It's becoming a question of whether there'll be enough funding to last until April, so we'll see. For the moment, some films are getting released, some more independent films or low-budget, mid-budget ones getting being pushed by studios, and that's what we're seeing now with On the Rocks, which may not have got as prominent a release as it would have pre-pandemic. It's a new Sofia Coppola film. It is starring Rashida Jones, Marlon Wayans, and Bill Murray. It is about a couple played by Rashida Jones and Marlon Wayans. The Rashida Jones character begins to suspect that her husband is unfaithful to her and she enlists the support and guidance of her father to not just be a support mechanism, but to determine if this is in fact the case. Her father having set a very poor example for her to grow up in terms of someone who also was very well known for having affairs. This is both about her relationship with her father and her husband. I would take the interpretation more of her with her father. This is the first Sophia Coppola release since The Beguiled. I think comparisons will be drawn with Lost in Translation simply because there's a young female protagonist and Bill Murray, and they're very different films. But comparisons should also be made to Somewhere, which was also covering this oversized influence of this famous and rich father over a daughter. And there is a certain meta commentary here, which people will be familiar with. Certainly, Sophia Coppola's father is very well known on that. I'm um, actually there's a really good Patrick Williams video that just came out one one of two on the legacy of Francis Ford Coppola. But I digress. I quite liked this film without being able to overly recommend it. I enjoyed it without finding it especially memorable. I think when the film really conned on to the fact that it was about a relationship between a father and daughter rather than a relationship between a husband and wife, the former being much more interesting, I enjoyed it a lot more. I used to think Bill Murray's character is exceptionally well written and performed here. Murray's always excellent. I think the other characters by comparison, especially the husband, are a little more underwritten, but the actors are good. As a side note, I've noticed a bit of a trend lately, historically, and what's always been the case, Hollywood have liked to make films about 20-something people in their 20s and very young and uh, there's certainly an age bracket of slightly older actors who don't get their fair share. Um, Bill Murray, obviously, but Rashida Jones and Marlon Wayans, they're 44 and 48 respectively. This is not something you typically would have seen in the decades past and not a point is made of it and I like that. I appreciate that. It's Sophia Coppola writing about characters like herself. You know, when Rashida Jones made some comment about her struggles to write, I relate it to something I'd read in a Sophia Coppola interview, and I thought it was lots of autobiographical touches. If it means we get to see movies about people who are in their 40s, great. Please, more autobiographical material. We fetishize youth too much. It's quite fine. Though attention in some respects is drawn to the character's age, more Bill Murray's than anyone else. And her, I didn't actually consider that part of it, but yes. The Rashida Jones character, she's well-written in some respects, um, and it is very much a prototype for the writer. It's very clear. Mm. I'd love Bill Murray in this. When you were saying before that you appreciated it more when it became focused on the relationship between the father and the daughter, I agree that stuff's the stronger material. I think, But I think the setup with the concerns about the way the marriage is going. It was really just there um, to lay the foundation for the the real focus of the film, this father-daughter relationship. To that end, I really liked how the setup worked because it leaves you with enough questions that it does seem fishy. The central conflict of this film is or at least the defining narrative one, as opposed to the character-based conflict that emerges though they're linked, is is Marlon Wayans actually cheating on Rashida Jones' character? She doesn't like to think that he would do that, but Bill Murray is certain that he would. So the question becomes, is he just projecting because this is what he would do? To that end, I thought the setup was very well written because it leaves you with enough suspicious activity that it could well be that he's cheating without there ever being any real kind of smoking gun. And Bill Murray's behavior is so sus in that he is so ridiculously fixated on hitting on anything with legs (laughs) 
that it's like, are you just projecting your own kind of internalized misogyny slash justifying your own womanizing by thinking everyone would do as you did? But at the same time, it's very clear that she at least for a large part of her life, had this man as the predominant male figure and an example to set. And Mm. it leads into, should she trust this person? And I agree the setup in terms of how we see Marlon Wayne's character interacting with her and others leaves it ambiguous enough in the early stages to keep you guessing, keep you wondering. And it works quite well with a lot of screwball comedy elements. Mm the scene shared between Jones and Murray and it works with this like semi-mystery plot I mean the plot the driving force isn't is this man cheating are we trying to find out it's her and her father teasing out their relationship the film's working on multiple levels I enjoyed that I enjoyed just how good and how idiosyncratic Murray is like he's referred to as the master of deadpan, but he's used so, for uh, not just a comedic effect, but a very delayed dramatic effect. Well, that's been the later. that's been the defining part of the second half of his career, really. Movies like Lost in Translation and Broken Flowers. I think ever since he came back with Rushmore, really, it seems like he's focused on funneling that irony into more comedy drama contexts, and it still is really really funny. If anything, I think it's a more natural fit than in a movie like Ghostbusters where the joke is how out of step he is with everybody else by seeming to take the situations more seriously and also not seriously at all, approaching everything with a with a sense of irony. It makes more sense in something more low-key like this, I think. And it works really well in um, one of my favorite scenes, which I think wouldn't have worked also for someone as charismatic as he, but the great scene where they're pulled over by the cops and he has to try and talk his way out of this. Brilliant, brilliant. I actually really liked this film. It's very low-key. And I, I can agree that some aspects of it are underdeveloped. Like the husband could have been better written. It's just, um, but it's there's just not much of him. Wayne's being charming. And Marlon Wayans is great. This may sound like a strange recommendation, but he made a film a couple of years ago called Naked on Netflix, which is just Groundhog Day where he appears naked every morning. It's right. good as it sounds, but it's, 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 it's not that great, but it's not nearly as bad as it sounds. Okay. When you said it's not as good as it sounds, I was like, really? Because it doesn't sound good as a whole. I mean, it's not as bad as it sounds. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. great. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, sorry. Excuse me there. But he's but, um, playing just the, you're the charming dude who at least appears outwardly the, idyllic. There's not much of him. So it, it didn't need to be that well-written. I, you know, I think that's her thinking. I think to a large extent it's true. But at the same time, there are aspects that could be rendered more believable about the way that he's depicted. I think despite being low-key, though, that this movie, because it's so well-observed and so well-acted, and because it does leave you thinking about the core theme and the core question, I found it actually quite engaging. I thought it was funny enough and interesting enough on a scene-by-scene basis, and it's also really gorgeous visually. This movie really made me want to live in New York, which is quite an achievement given everything that's going on at the moment. With a lot of films set in cities, and especially actually overly New York, Hmm. there's always always an establishing shot of the skyline or a crane in or an overview shot. There's none of these here. It's all shot at ground level, like the apartment, which we spoke about earlier. Hmm. Except for these gorgeous establishing shots. It's extremely colorful. My favorite were the ones where Bill Murray's character has this amazing car and they're just jetting around. It's an incredibly romanticized version of modern New York, which you don't often see. Yeah, it reminded me of Manhattan um, in some ways. It's a very negative place in a lot of films today. 
Yeah, yeah. On that, I did have a bit of a disconnect with this film where all the characters in it, um, and though for no real, except for the husband, for no real explanation, are very, very wealthy. Now, I don't mind watching films about wealthy people. I don't mind watching films where people are rich and living a nice life. But when everyone is just so unabashedly so, with no real explanation as to how or why or how they got there, there is a bit of a disconnect between me and these characters. I find it difficult to write. I could have watched the same film about people who were at a low SES background or weren't as wealthy, and it could have been just as, if not more, relatable. To pick up on a thread from last week, I was talking about Mulan and saying I can't understand why critics have given this good review. And uh, taking that into this week, I was wondering why critics hadn't been giving this such a positive reception relative to some of the other recent releases when I think it's actually really strong. Granted, other people may not agree, but I feel like this could be why. I feel like it's not considered right now cool within the culture to really celebrate wealth on this level. Because this movie does lean into the fantasy of extraordinary wealth. I reckon Sofia Coppola knows a world of wealth and privilege, but this is probably beyond. Maybe I'm um, underestimating the Coppola family <laughs> treasure chest. Okay. I know she's yeah. bankrupt for a long time, in fairness. And yeah. But she, her family, the circle she surrounds herself with, certainly are. Yeah. Cool. But some of, some of the influence and access here points to real upper, upper echelons of society kind of that it seems that Bill Murray has come from. It seems like she, she is extremely wealthy and he is just absurdly wealthy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, and what, from what I have to say, I'll make an exception for the Rashida Jones character, but it seems that everyone else in this film, both her parents, anyone she surrounds herself with, suddenly there's a bit of an awkward scene to this effect at a very nice manner. The Tony said nothing better to do than to, while at a time, and just speculate on here or that. Certainly there's the sequences where she's talking with some of her friends, and there's nothing, it, it just seems, oh, we have nothing. Where, where, when do they work? I know they do work in this film, but... This is not a relatable film for a lot of people. Marlon Wayans is um, is immediately suspicious in the world of this film because he actually works. Yeah, the whole thing is. Yes. What are you doing at work? <laughs> oh no, but he, he, in Venice, I'm being mean. Yeah, he he goes out to places that wouldn't necessarily be part of a regular work day. Yeah, yeah, no, he his, does. He definitely does some suspicious he doesn't flag stuff. it with her. There's yeah, yeah. I didn't so much mind the, the aspects of wealth because firstly, I think it, it's to some extent made a running joke, like the things that Bill Murray is able to do. It's like, how do you have the ability to access that at all? Also, Sophia Coppola, I think, is probably drawing a lot from her own life here. I doubt it's autobiographical, but I feel like there's a lot of autobiographical touches and elements. And I feel like she's decided to write what she knows completely this time and fine, you know, I, I don't want to shame her for doing that. Because despite being about extremely wealthy people, I, I understand this can be wearying, but it didn't feel like an affectation to me. I just thought, okay, they're rich, fine. You know, I'll go with it. What grabbed me about this film, despite it being very low key, is, is just that the moments are really well observed. There's so many great little touches, like the way that Bill Murray looks at or talks to certain women or the way that Rashida Jones interacts with her character's kids, little incidental details of life of like picking them up, how to keep them entertained. My, my favorite to this effect was the scene where he is talking later in the film about the woman he left Rashida Jones's character's mother for and their history. Oh yeah, and yeah, beautiful. Very moving. Um, That's right. I think done with great affection. And there are several great scenes where 
this worked as a fact, there's a couple of scenes where the share between the husband and wife just the moment where they're sitting in the car on a bit of a stakeout and waiting for the husband yeah look there's very it's well, well considered. Obs- yeah i just found the film quite well observed and engaging just on a human level the biggest problem with it for me is probably how fast the resolution was at the end it wraps up way too quickly given the circumstances i think because she wants to keep the light tone she wants to end the film lightly and quickly and get to the point and protracting the resolution out would have taken it into heavier territory so she's decided to just put a bow on it quickly but it doesn't feel worthy of the conflict that the narratives set up over the course of the film essentially this follows the 50s 40s style of screwball comedy where the ending where all you want is the conflicts going throughout it's done get to the the ending and it's supposed to wrap up and you're supposed to be left with whatever the result of the ending you're supposed to be left with a bit of a happy feeling happy-go-lucky moment and it's all very oh oh there it is it's a lost art denouement is never as evolved as any of the first or first or second acts it's just it's the old-fashioned style i actually respect it and in some ways it was refreshing to see it come up it's just that this film has already shown that it has a bit of a darker heart so it didn't quite come off right you know screwball films are so silly that you accept it and on a side note a lot of films like to use the symbolism of a storm to connote upheaval in a person's life. Here it's actually worked quite well. Usually it's just overwrought and, oh, we're doing this again. But also... Here it was natural and endemic within a narrative. So this I film outworked. This film uses the settings to draw out the drama very well. For such a low-key film, which is focused on performance as opposed to visuals, I feel like visuals are very well handled. I think Sophia Coppola is a very, very talented filmmaker. I think this is on par with most of her films. I think if you like her stuff, I would seek it out. I would say so too. I don't think it's having recently watched in the level lost in translation or as dramatically resonant as something like The Beguiled. I preferred it to The Beguiled, honestly. I would recommend The Beguiled, but to me, this just felt a little bit more fully realized. I've always noticed stuff. I love Marie Antoinette. I know a lot of people don't like that film, but it's so good. Yeah, I wasn't so big on The Bling Ring. I thought it was entertaining, but kind of shallow. But yeah, this is as good as most of her filmography, for sure. I feel like the low-key reception it's receiving is probably going to put a lot of people off seeking it out. But I think it's one of the best film releases of the year, personally. So that is On the Rocks. It is going to be released on Apple from the 23rd, and it is in cinemas now at Cordova Palace. Yeah, Apple TV Plus, they call it, apparently. So whatever that is. Many streaming services. Yeah. So the next film we're talking about is Aaron Sorkin's written and directed by... His sophomore directorial effort. Yep, The Trial of the Chicago 7. It is starring Eddie Redmayne, Sacha Baron Cohen, Frank Langella. I'll bring up the full cast list. And There's so many people. There's so many people. We've got Alex Sharp. We have John Carroll Lynch, who's great. Yaha Abdul-Mateen, second Mark Rylance, of course, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. It is about the trial of those who were allegedly major instigators of a number of major riots in the 60s in response to the Vietnam War Uh-oh. and disaffection with what was going on in the United but States. Spe- specifically, though, this is about the riot at the Chicago Democratic National Convention in 1968. Yes. Oh, a lot to say about this. I think this film almost accidentally taps into the current zeitgeist. I think it would have done so a lot more had there been a greater focus on the Bobby Seale character played by Abdul Mateen, who is the leader of the Black Panthers. I think that tangent of it, which was more predominant about the first and second act, was much more interesting than a lot of the other defendants or what else was going on. I also think just by virtue of the form, as per the title, there are seven characters here. They all have interesting stories, but Sorkin could have teased this out of a series over a film 
film, none of them are adequately teased out to such a great effect. I wanted to learn more about each of them and I would have done over a long form series. I couldn't do this in two hours and seven minutes. Yeah, I think it's probably the big takeaway a lot of people are going to have coming out of this, that it should have been a TV show. I feel like four to 10 episodes, prestige Netflix miniseries would be perfect. Sorkin has a lot of background maintaining a show working on on the level of scope that this film is over a long form narrative and doing it well. It's a procedural court drama. It thrives on the detail. The more detail started to accumulate in this story, the more I actually became engaged with it because the story is so incredible. It's just the filmmaking and the kind of reductive, simple approach that lets it down. So please, you know, he had access to Netflix. Why did he not make this a a series? On the matter of courtroom drama, compare this to Sorkin's breakout play film, which is still marvelous and still played on Channel 10 all the time, A Few Good Men, which is also courtroom drama. It's about two defendants. It's on nine now. used to be on 10 all the time, but now it's on channel nine. Right. (laughs) It's always at 8.30 on Friday night along with Jerry Maguire. It was, yeah. And it works because you have defined narrative, you know what the stakes are, and you do here, but it's playing on a much broader canvas which could have been teased out over several films. Um, by the end of it, it kind of feels like, oh, episodes, sorry. yeah, by the end, it's like, oh, you're ending now? There was more to say. Yeah, Aaron Sorkin is the founder of, without exaggeration, my all-time favorite television show, The West Wing. I've watched it through quite a few times. And there are elements here that a lot of West Wing fans will like and relate and recognize. Certainly the very basic plot of the film about the very tardy resignation of a cabinet secretary is actually a plot point in season four of The West Wing. He does recycle some of the elements of the dialogue. However, in comparison to The West Wing, there's some really lazy scripting here and that Sorkin has never reverted to characters like speaking in a microphone and telling the story and then telling some of it via flashback. There are a couple of episodes of The West Wing that were like this, but the newsroom is other films were never like this. I know Studio 60 was, and it was, I think, one of the weaker points in his career, for which is a fair assessment. There's just, he wants to get out a story and it reminds me of the lady scripting in a film like Trainspotting 2, where the characters are just relaying stories and then jumping elsewhere in the editing. It's not a compelling way to tell a narrative and Sorkin's better than this. The writing in general is quite lazy. The film as a whole seemed kind of pitched a little bit dumb. Would you agree with that? I think the film should have given a little more background on the story. Certainly while people are fairly familiar with the era, they may not be familiar with this particular story. The film has also pitched it. You feel bad. You, f- you, want, you want to feel good about social change. This is the film for you. And I think it's also sort of in the style. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, man. He oh, don't get me started. That's a whole other tangent. But when I say that it's pitched a little bit dumb, I mean, it's full of scenes where characters explain the point that we already understand, whether this is a moral point or literally a point of like, oh, you meant to say this? Like we immediately figure it out and there's a protracted process to get there. It's really TV movie, you know, like when it started with the, the really heavy... Sorry, definitely. Oh, I'm saying absolutely. Yeah, it, it suffers the same curse that a lot of Netflix films are afflicted with where it's like, oh, this is just the new made-for-TV movies. And it shouldn't have. This is a prestige Oscar beta with Aaron Sorkin behind it. But the way that he uses music is so schmaltzy and like, basic. You know, like, here come the, the heavy chords. It's a sad moment. The judge, Frank Langella, is so villainous. Don't get me wrong. From the, the sounds of the story, he is the villain. But the way that it's handled is just so kind of broad. It feels dumb for material that's fascinating. A few points to that. 
I agree that the music swells the most. Oh, you have to have a tearjerk moment here. I think the ending scene in the film is a very powerful one, which is actually not furthered by the just grand swelling music at this time. I think the exposition is actually worse than you described. The There's all these moments of, oh, you're, I'm this character, you're this character, you're this character, and characters literally explaining who each other are. Yeah. Like long-form television series, you can get you away can with it. You avoid it. But here, um, it's patently obvious in two hours. I referred earlier to just in terms of the tone and style, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he's on the sort of tone that he's is playing in Edward Snowden, where yes, he's playing the quote-unquote bad guy in this universe, but he, the actor is just so clearly winking at the camera. I am on that side. I hate what's going on. You're supposed to believe this. I want to pop that track on Jello, but Chris? I think this is also a failing on Sorkin's part. I think Sorkin's tried to add some shades of gray here, and he's looked at this guy and gone, okay, he's one of the few people on the prosecution who ever acted with any kind of honor therefore he can be the nice guy the good guy but really i would think that by this point in history i was just doing my job didn't cut it that well as a defense he's the prosecuting attorney in a show trial going on in america does he really deserve such a rosy portrait as they give him here probably not probably not and michael keaton's character however short his presence was in the film was much more interesting in this regard um, as were some of the discussions teased out around the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character. I actually think the Frank Langella character was one of the more interestingly written. I found myself agreeing with him at some times and appreciating the moral ambiguity here. He was right a lot of the time, but he was also such a jerk the rest of the time. He was, but there's a scene, I don't want to read it, but there's a scene where he's accused of something at a sidebar and he calls out one of the trial attorneys and that shows, and he may be having them on, but it, this, this shows that he has some shades of gray. He's trying to uphold the system and he's working within it i think the film does paint him as having a strong bias towards these characters but he also points out that he's working within the legal system in illinois that he's been presented with i like the treatment of the franklin Jilla character more yeah. than some of the others going into the the actual story behind this though I feel like the way he acted is so suspicious that I feel like he, there must have been some strings pulled to install this guy on the case, right? And go into that. If you yeah. get behind the scenes stuff about the prosecutor's office and the attorney general's department, go into that detail. And they could have done the long form series. Otherwise, it would have been a three hour film. They could have made a three hour film, but they didn't. Eddie Redmayne, dear me. He's, look, I, I hate Eddie Redmayne. Um, He's badly cast here. But I, I thought he was actually good in this movie. He's a the, good the problem. The problem good. is just the baggage we bring seeing Eddie Redmayne as opposed a to... Lot of, but that, that's the issue with a lot of the actors in this film. Um, Alex Sharp, <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen. Yes. It's such a big problem because it's fine for actors to do different roles, but when an actor by virtue of what they've been in or how we know them or just rep- repetition of the, what they've been cast, you can't escape it. Like Sasha Baron Cohen's a example of this. Certainly a good director and writer with good production values can say, oh, come in and say, oh no, we're going to transform this person. But production isn't so slick or considered so to do that. So you're just looking at Sasha Baron Cohen, Alex Sharp, and Eddie Redmayne, and it feels like a slick Hollywood production in that regard. It's when this film started, I actually started to laugh. Um, I mean, Jeremy Strong, excuse me. Yeah, when this and started, Alex effect too. right? Well, yeah, when when this film started, I immediately had the feeling of oh god, this is bad, and started to see the whole thing is really funny. It took about half an hour for the details of the case to start interesting me and me to you know start settling into the narrative and. I basically enjoyed myself and had fun with this movie, but this is in spite it's of tone with some of the um, yeah. how the police caught them sort of stuff. 
Yeah, this was basically in spite of because the material rose above the terrible direction. When the the film started, you're seeing a lot of setting the scene scenes where we see this overly broad dialogue of here's where this is happening and characters, you know, dumb quips. And this is what I believe lines of dialogue. And it's all being delivered by people in weird wigs, famous people. And it's distracting. You know, it's like I'm surrounded. Mark Rylance, he was good. I was, Mark Rylance was great, but at this point where he's just, you know, when he first appeared, it just added to this sensation of why are all these great actors dressed in, you know, like look at me makeup and, and 70s outfits and the tone is not being nailed and it's happening really quickly in a musical montage with bad writing. And I just thought, oh God, this guy has not made it yet as a director. No. This, this film could have been directed by Spielberg. He was at one point attached. And Spielberg, to me, elicited more raw emotion out of The Post, which is a way less interesting story. Imagine if he was handling this. Uh, it, would have been great. It, it would have been a lot better. Well, and I think Spielberg can still make a film with $100 million and make it seem very down to earth. The problem here is that most films about this era and these sort of people are good, not because they're low budget or cheap, but because they're a little bit raw. This film probably had more in the production budget than all these movements collectively had funding them for their protest marches. So it feels Hollywood 50 years on, hey, we're going to make this movie about these people we idolize, but aren't really on their level. It's like the Van Gogh thing I spoke about last week. These hilarious historical ironies where people who toiled in poverty suddenly get all the money thrown to tell their story in a crass way <laughs> when the tide of history turns. And on that, the film recreates a lot of great things that actually happened in the courtroom that are interesting, but without really commenting on them. I don't think it's enough just to recreate a scene. I refer to the final scene, which is really good, and I'm really glad it's in the film. But then it's so just devalued by the freeze frame and text oh, going yeah. across the screen. And here's what happened to this character. Here's what happened Bad to this choices. character. Again, that's something you can tease out in a longer form series or Battle of the Sexes a couple of years back. It didn't do that. It just left it open and said, audience, go out and find more about these figures. I appreciated that. It's just so hackneyed and bad here. And you know what? Sorkin never did this sort of stuff. He's trying to tell a much grander narrative in two hours for a guy who is used to... The guy, the guy made the West Wing. He can go out and make any TV series he wants. Why doesn't he? Yeah, Netflix, I think, would have given him the same funding. I think this film started actually as a Paramount film or whatever, and then Netflix bought it. But I wonder if it was born at Netflix, would this have been a series? Would the executives have said, hey, how about... I think he needed that kind of input. It also might have been easier to convince Eddie Redman and Sacha Baron Cohen, we only need you for two hours worth mm. of filming versus 10 hours worth of filming. I think the bigger thing is it might have convinced them Oscar instead of Emmy. Yeah. Yeah, that would have done it. Yeah. And... Mark Rylance is great. Mark, Mark Rylance is everything. superb. He was the best in show actor in this. Yeah. The interaction so. between him and Abdul Mateen, those they were great. There was clear, and also that was that was a good thing because there was more to these characters' backgrounds and their story and their relationship. We didn't know that it was left for us to wonder. But I liked. You're right. Good I touch. Liked dynamic. They had they were interesting ones, but I couldn't. And I did like. There's a scene, and yes, it's annoyingly teased out with exposition where characters are talking at each other about their different philosophies. But I did like it when Eddie Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen were fighting about their conflicting approaches to these movements. Mm. And that oh yeah, that was engaging. That, I want to hear it. more on that. That should be. Why aren't we talking more about? I mean, the film taps to the zeitgeist that's very current. Yeah. This, this discussion is relevant. Why not have them? Whether not just through dialogue, but actually 
you find having the film find out what is the better approach to movements that seek to instigate change. That was the most interesting stuff because it treated the material in less broad strokes than a lot of 60s stories usually do. It was getting into the nitty gritty of how this worked and the social context of the time and how they were navigating it and the questions that and conflicts that would have been there among the student activists. The whole story is completely fascinating. That's why the film really couldn't fail. You know, I, I still enjoyed it in spite of all my criticisms because this story is just so interesting. It's incredibly relevant now, especially given the, the, the film deals with the, the trial as a consequence of um, political, a major political shift in the United States. I did like the scene at the beginning where they're taking down the Lyndon Johnson portrait and putting up the Richard Nixon one. This is relevant to what's going on now. Why not? And I, I, I wonder how much of this film was conceived and made and, sh and, and put in the can before this year. All of it, I would say. All of it, yeah. I think it would have been a slightly different film had it been produced this year and more relevant. That's not the film's fault, but look, the film comes out when it comes out and it can only be as relevant as its time. Yeah. So that is The Trial of the Chicago 7. It is screening on Netflix from the 16th. But it's right now playing at in Sydney, Cremorne Orpheum, Dendi Newtown, and the Radwick Ritz. I caught it the Dendi. It was good to be back. Caught it the Ritz. You know me. So we will be back next week with Farat Nehru. You can catch these films in cinemas and on streaming soon. Let us know what you want us to fight about. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever good podcasts are found. This has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans. Enjoy movies and good night.